right, loyal listeners, welcome back to the show. Yeah. The American Craftsman Podcast, if you forgot what you're listening to. What episode is this? This episode 35. And uh got to apologize for the last two weeks. Um, you know, not having an episode last week and having sort of an out-of-norm format two weeks ago. Um, I actually had COVID, unfortunately. Uh, luckily, I was fine, but... yeah. Put, you know, a, put a wrench in the gear. Yeah, we were, you know, we couldn't, obviously we couldn't record because I had COVID. Rob <laughs> did not have COVID. Um, so that would have been a bad idea. I guess we could probably could have tried to do it remotely, but, you know. <laughs> we're woodworkers. Yeah. We're um, so, yeah, you know, you got a little break from us, a little spring break, I guess. Uh, but we're back at it this week. We're getting into Art Nouveau. But uh, before we get into it, better thank our sponsor, Bits and Bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bits and Bits, if you don't know, they uh, manufacture router bits in their shop in Oregon, and they also sell router bits, um, namely white side router bits with their proprietary Astro coating, um, which is a nano coating designed to keep the bit running cooler and prolonging the sharpness of the cutting edge because of that cooling uh, effect. Um, they make spiral router bits from an eighth inch shank to a half inch shank and uh, from a one thirty second cutting diameter all the way up to a half inch. Uh, upcut, downcut, compression, and more. Um, you know, you can use them in your router table, handheld router, CNC routers, and, uh, you know, everybody from hobbyists to production shops are using these bits. We use them ourselves. Um, and they also sell Festool. Yeah, like the, the bits and sundries. Bits and What the hell is that? <laughs> Paraphernalia. Uh, like, they don't really sell the Festool tool line. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I think they, they maybe they have some, but mostly, yeah, they're specializing in the accessories for the routers and the domino, domino cutters, stuff like that. So uh, if you want to save 15% site-wide, use our coupon code, American Craftsman. That's substantial. Yeah, help support the podcast and uh, get yourself some nice router bits. So thanks, Bits and Bits, for sponsoring the show. Let's get into it. Art Nouveau. Yeah. I have to be honest, I knew nothing of Art Nouveau when we started. You know, you have this conceptual idea like Art Deco and mm -hmm. things like that. So, although I've learned a lot doing this podcast, uh, this one was like almost almost every paragraph was, is brand new information. Oh, wow. I'm, yeah, I'm excited. Um, uh, so, Art Nouveau, it, it means new art. Hmm. Uh, it's French, I suppose, um, because we'll learn that's kind of where um, the the term comes from. Right. Uh, and there's a surprising influence to Art Nouveau. Around 1880, you have the British Arts and Crafts Movement. Mm -hmm. Talk to William Morris. Yeah, yeah. And um, there was sort of like, you know, the reaction against the, the cluttered designs of the Victorian era, yep, and um, you know, sort of the the degeneration of handcraftedness and things like that. Um, that was a big influence on Art Nouveau as well. Hmm. Um, the second uh, main influence for the birth of Art Nouveau is uh, Japanese art. Which really, you know, as we learned, also had an influence on the arts and crafts movement. Yeah, um, uh, particularly these woodblock prints that a lot of European artists were um, 
getting into in the 1880s and 90s. And here are some artists, uh, names you might have heard of. Uh, Gustav Klimt, maybe uh, Emil Gall, and James Abbott McNeil Whistler. Mm. Um, anything that's in blue is a link. So I know in the past I've made some notes where we didn't have examples of like what they were. But I tried to um, include, you know, more of those things so we could get an idea of, like, what their work was yeah. all about. I lost my mouse. <laughs> well, there it was. It's in the top left. It doesn't, it doesn't want to go over. Oh, it doesn't? Get over there. Oh. Um, yeah, I found it curious that these were the two... Um, major influences that uh, sort of birthed Art Nouveau. Mm -hmm. um, an Austrian painter. Yeah. Um, and I guess James Abbott McNeil Whistler is Whistler of Whistler's mother. Uh, he kind of looks oh, like yeah. Mark Twain. Yeah, he does. There's Whistler's mother on the right. Is that a, paint a famous painting? Yeah, yeah. Um... But, uh, I'm an uncultured swine. Yeah, well, so am I. Um, and these Japanese woodblock prints, they had a lot of, um, flowers, floral and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bulbous forms. And this word, uh, this descriptive word, whiplash, hmm. whiplash curves kept popping up over and over again. And once we get into looking at the furniture, you, you'll see what that is. But those are all key elements of what it would eventually become known as Art Nouveau. Yeah, I'm thinking of like Japanese chrysanthemums maybe mm -hmm. or the, and the the Sakura. Yeah, and if, if you remember in the arts and crafts, the British arts and crafts movement especially, like they were into the, the flowers on the wallpaper and yeah. things like that. Morris was... was one of the big guys doing yeah, that. A lot of nature-inspired. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, this, this um, whole section is going to be structured a little bit uh, differently than some of the previous ones because we don't really have, like, the manufacturing differences to go into. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of unknown to me artists and the work and so that section is really long yep so it's kind of like you know it's it's sort of a um you know a, probably like a two section thing that'll be divided up into four you know we'll split it right and there's a lot of artists that were influential in art nouveau mm -hmm. um it, it was kind of yeah, it's, it's a furniture style with art in the name so yeah yeah <laughs> You know, it makes sense that it was so heavily influenced by f the fine arts. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you're always good at pinning this stuff out because <laughs> that comes up later. You know, the the high arts, the fine arts, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it's it was a pretty um, inspiring episode to to research because of all this new information. Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't really know, you know, the, when, they can't really say when um, the first works of art that were officially known as Art Nouveau um, surfaced. Some 
say that it was patterned after the flowing lines and floral backgrounds found in paintings of Van Gogh. We've all heard of Van Gogh mm -hmm. and Paul Gauguin. Um, uh, and uh, there's lithographs from Le Toulouse-Lautrec, um, such as the Moulin Rouge, and that's from 1891. Um, but most point to the origins in the decorative arts, and in particular to a book jacket by the English architect and designer Arthur Haygood McMurdo. Uh, it, it was called uh, Wren's City Churches, and I was careful to look that up and put a link there. <laughs> Uh oh. I can't even read Oh, there it, it oh, is. There we go. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is this book jacket in black and white is what many point to as like the first work of Art Nouveau mm -hmm. designated artwork. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to describe. Yeah. It, it's reminiscent to me of those like early 1900s, like, um, I mean, for lack of a better term, like sort of propaganda posters. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, again, you, you hit something on the head because posters become like legitimate artwork during mm -hmm. this time. Um, it kind of reminds me a, a little bit of like when 60s pop culture came about and they were doing all that poster art and things like that. They seem to have borrowed from this yeah. period. This definitely has like a sort of a psychedelic look. With yeah, the, yeah. With the, um, curvaceous lines. Look it up. Wren's City Churches book jacket. It's there's a lot of unexpected stuff in this. Yeah, Wren, W-R-E-N. Yeah, category. Like, like the bird. Um, Carolina Wren. There you go. Um, the design, the Wren's book jacket, depicts serpentine stalks of flowers emanating from one flattened pad at the bottom of the page. And clearly reminiscent of Japanese-style woodblock prints. Hmm. Um, and Art Nouveau was the most conspicuous at international expositions. Um, this is something we started talking about in the last one or two um, series, right? These expos yep. that were happening. Like KBIS. <laughs> yeah. Except they used to actually show good stuff. Yeah. Now it's just a bunch of junk. Yeah. <laughs> Although there have been some, there have been some, uh, uh, what do you call the um, people who, uh, detractors, there have been detractors of each style. That's as, true. You know, we've gone through it. Um, but Art Nouveau enjoyed center stage at five particular fairs, the 1889 and 1900 expos, uh, expositions, Universelle in Paris. And there's a lot of French in this, and my my French is non-existent, so the pronunciations are going to be terrible. <clears throat> it's one of those languages like like Portuguese. If you don't speak it, the, right, you, you really got no, ch no yes. chance. <laughs> the 1897 Tourverine Exposition in Brussels, mm. uh, where Art Nouveau was largely employed to show off the possibilities of craftsmanship with the exotic woods of the Belgian Congo. Belgian uh, Congo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, politics and, Imperialism you know, at its best. It's, it's, it's never far from these things, you know, world events. Um, the 1902 Turin 
uh, International Exposition of Modern Decorative Arts, and the 1909 Exposition Internationale de l'Este de la France in Nancy, and that's in France. Mm. There's a school of Nancy, which we will learn about. <laughs> I'm a Nancy boy. Yes. You go to Nancy. <laughs> it probably sounds different if you say it with a French accent. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in English, in Americanese, it's Nancy. Um, so at each of these fairs, the style was dominant. The Art Nouveau style was dominant in terms of the decorative arts and architecture on display. And in turn, in 1902, Art Nouveau was truly the style of choice of virtually every designer and every nation represented to the exclusion of any other. So um, by 1902, Art Nouveau is really in vogue. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of happening uh, at the same time as uh, arts and crafts, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and we didn't really hear about that when we were doing the arts and crafts right. period. That's. Um, it seems like maybe in, in Europe, arts and crafts was going out of style in mm -hmm. the late, late 1890s. Yeah. And it was just really, I mean, it wasn't even coming into style in the U.S. yet. It, it You know, Stickley was kind of, I guess, the forefather. And he, uh, at that time, was still building, like, reproductions and stuff, I mm -hmm. think. You know, it wasn't until, like, the 19-teens that he really got into the, well, maybe the 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 late uh, first first decade of uh, 1900s. Yeah, no, but. I think you're right on the money there. Um, you know, it's, you could see the America, is the U.S. isn't even mentioned in any of this. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of that way. Art Nouveau is really uh, a European style. Yeah. Um, but it, it does influence, you know, it does creep its way into the U S so it's part of the, you know, the American period as well. Mm -hmm. So Siegfried Bing, um, was a German merchant and he was a connoisseur of Japanese art and he was living in Paris and he opened a shop named La Art Nouveau hmm. in 1895. And a lot of people point to th this is the, you know, seems obvious. Right. Where did the movement get its name? Um, and he, because he became one of the main purveyors of the style and furniture and the decorative arts. And um, that's something that uh, maybe we're getting away from, but the style and furniture and the decorative arts combined as one thing, you mm -hmm. know, like, uh, furniture, wallpaper, color schemes. Yeah. That was all, you know, part and parcel of these movements. Um, so before long, the store's name became synonymous with the style in France, Britain, and even the U S Art Nouveau's uh, wide popularity throughout Western and Central Europe, however, meant that it went by several different titles. Um, each region, each country had its own name for Art Nouveau because it, I guess they translated it into the new art. Right. Uh, in German-speaking countries, it was known as the youth style, Jugendstil. <laughs> and it was taken from a Munich magazine called Jugend that popularized it. 
meanwhile, in Vienna, home to Gustav Klimt, Otto Wagner, Joseph Hoffman, and other founders of the Vienna Secession, which was this offshoot of Art Nouveau uh, at its beginnings, was it was known as uh, Secession style. I'm not even going to Secession style. <laughs> Go ahead, say it in German. Uh, Secession style. Yeah. So I guess steel is style. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in the Spanish speaking countries like, uh, Spain, it was known as modernismo, uh, modernisme in Catalan and stile floreale, hmm. floral style or stile liberty in Italy. Um, uh, Stile Liberty, Style Liberty, uh, was named after Arthur Liberty's fabric shop in London, uh, which helped popular popularize that style. Oh, interesting. It it is. I mean, it you could see how sort of helter skelter these things uh, uh, happen in mm -hmm. a way. Catalan is another one of those languages that. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Got X's and all kinds yeah, of crazy letters exactly. in there. Exactly. In France, also called uh, the modern style, uh, and occasionally style, uh, this guy's name is Jumard, yeah. after its most famous practitioner there. Um, the, uh, there was the architect Hector Jumard. And in the Netherlands, it was, all, it was usually called New Kunst, New Art. Hmm. So, yeah, Art Nouveau. Um, as I mentioned, it's numerous detractors also gave it several <laughs> derogatory names. <These> funny. <laughs> this is a good one. <laughs> St style noodle, noodle style. <laughs> I'll, I'll just use the English, the translations in Belgium. They called it eel style. <laughs> and in Germany, this is a good one. Tapeworm style. Bondworm steel. <laughs> or the bondworm steel. That sounds nefarious. <laughs> sounds like it comes from an Austin Powers yeah. movie, right? The bondworm steel. <laughs> they all made playful reference to Art Nouveau's tendency to employ sinuous and flowing lines. Uh, so... Art Nouveau, it can't be separated from graphics and design. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all um, lumped together. And in some ways, it's, it's actually, from my understanding of it, after, um, you know, reading and writing this stuff, it's kind of the driving force of the style. You know, all the, the print stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we get into the furniture designs, it's it's all over the place. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, <clears throat> like when was the printing press invented, you know, where it wasn't like letter by letter, these blocks. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like it's just becoming something that can be widely distributed with the turn of the, the Industrial Revolution. That's another good point. So there's, you know, probably such a huge desire for people to put these things out because now they have this ability to just print off hundreds and thousands of copies of whatever. Right. Right. Especially 
you know, with several colors instead of just like a, you know, a, a two-tone thing. Mm -hmm. it, be it became a big marketing thing where, you know, there was no print marketing before, really. It was, you know. You know, you, you're just like uh, <laughs> seeing into the future here. Because marketing is another thing that kind of becomes, um, you know, it's new. Right. Marketing is is new, and and it it grabs onto Art Nouveau as a style. See if I can conjure up some uh, Powerball numbers later. <laughs> yeah. So uh, wait a second, back up just a little bit. Uh, Art Nouveau's ubiquity in the late nineteenth century must be explained in part by many artists' use of popular and easily reproduced forms found in the graphic arts. All right, so. You know, that's a just a sentence to wrap up what we were discussing. Oh, it's 150 million. That's pretty low, but yeah, you know, it's, be bad. A, it's pretty high for us, isn't it? Yeah, even taking home, take home 30 each. Yeah. Um, in Germany, the, the Jugendstil artists like Peter Behrens, I actually heard of him, hmm. uh, and Herman Obrist had their work printed on book covers and exhibition catalogs, uh, magazine advertisement, and playbills. Uh, and this trend was not limited to Germany. Uh, the English illustrator Aubrey Beardsley, again, I, I think I heard of him. Ooh, like Tim Beardsley. Yeah. True trade. <laughs> uh, you know, he could maybe do some research like you did. Yeah. And find that he's related. Mm-hmm. Um, he was perhaps the most controversial Art Nouveau figure due to his combination of the erotic and macabre. Hmm. And he created a number of posters in his brief career that employed graceful and rhythmic lines. Interesting. Yeah. Um, he, he, I, I did look this stuff up and, you know, if you, if you click on his name, I think it takes you to his Wikipedia page and mm -hmm. shows some of his work and you can see what they thought was erotic and macabre at the time. Um, Send in a video to Tim. <laughs> yeah. Beardsley's highly decorative prints such as the peacock skirt in 1894 were both decadent, decadent and simple and they represent the most direct link we can identify between Art Nouveau and the Japan, Japan, Jap, how can you say that? Might be Hopanism. Hopanism? Like the Japan, Japan in Spanish is Hapon. Okay. And Ukiyo-e Prince. Japanism just sounds. Yeah, it sounds weird, Maybe right? it is Japanism. Um, but again, there's that link straight back to um, the Japanese influence. Mm -hmm. um, in France, the posters and graphic production of Jules Charest, Henry Toulouse-Lautrec, Pierre Bernard. Um, wow, these are, these are tough names to say. Victor Prouvé uh, and a couple others. They <laughs> <Say> a feel. <laughs> the hell kind of name is that? They a feel. <laughs> Steinlin and a handful of others popularized the lavish, decadent lifestyle of the Belle Epoque, um, roughly the era between 1890 and 1914, usually associated with the seedy cabaret district of 
Montmartre in northern Paris. Hmm. Um, so it, it's this was a um, you know sort of a because there's so many things I was unfamiliar with. Try to summarize this is there's sort of a lifestyle going on, I guess, right? Yep. This is all at the end of the 1800s, right going into the 1900s. When did World War One start? Mm, Was it like like 19s? I should know this. Is it oh oh seven or is it yeah like eight or nine? Um. With the murder of Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. <laughs> but there's kind of like this, this um, you know, high point, decadent life living, right? This says 14 to 18, but, you know, we're talking about the precursors to the war. Right. Goes. So 1914. So this all happens pre-World War One, Um, And in the... All while all this is happening, they also what we mentioned was the poster becomes. I guess it was 1914. That is when Archduke Franz Ferdinand mm. was assassinated. Okay, I don't know why I had that in my head as when it ended. Yeah, 19. The Treaty of Versailles was 19. Okay. So yeah, eight, 1918 it ended. So during this time, um. As we noted, the poster becomes high art. It goes from yeah. just, you know, like something plastered onto a, you know, a construction site wall. Remember going to the mall and they would have the, like the tall thing with the posters in it that you could, oh, yeah, you could leaf yeah. through. And it'd be like the rock bands and yeah. stuff like that. Like wrestler or yeah. Spice Girls uh when I was uh, a youngin playing in the city, we would have to go out on these guerrilla marketing things. Paste up the... Yeah, with buckets of wallpaper paste. That's funny. And we'd get like hundreds of uh, your little flyer, like mm -hmm. you're going to be playing CBGBs, you know, Friday at 8. And <laughs> go out. Paste them over like, top of the other guys. Yeah, like 2 o'clock in the morning, yes. And on Thursday or Wednesday, you know, like one or two days before, so mm -hmm. you weren't papered over. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That, that was posters as low art, though. Yeah. Be like a, like six inches deep of posters on the walls. Yes. yes. That's like the telephone poles that are just made of staples. Yes. We had a staple gun, too. <laughs> oh, man. So posters became high art. Um, and um, we haven't really touched on furniture yet. We're still working on basically Art Nouveau as the almost like um, uh, a consciousness, mm -hmm. you know, a, a way of thinking, a way of uh, looking at art in general. And... Um, like some of the other periods, I think Victorian was one of them. Architecture plays a big role in Art Nouveau. Um, and, uh, I write this very serious sentence here. In addition to the graphic and visual arts, any serious discussion of Art Nouveau must consider architecture 
and the vast influence this had on European culture. Mm, indubitably. <laughs> In urban hubs such as Paris, Brussels, Glasgow, Turin or Torino, mm. Barcelona, Antwerp and Vienna, as well as smaller cities like Nancy and Darmstadt, uh, along with uh, Eastern European uh, cities, Riga, Prague, Budapest, Art Nouveau architecture prevailed on a grand scale in both size and appearance and is still visible today in structures as varied as small row houses to great institutional and commercial buildings. Um, it's big. I mean, I when I start, started seeing pictures of the architecture, I recognized buildings from New York and mm -hmm. things like that built in that style. In architecture, especially Art Nouveau, was showcased in a wide variety of idioms. Uh, many buildings incorporate a prodigious use of terracotta and colorful tile work. Uh, the French ceramicist Alexandre, Alexandre, now he's got an unfortunate name. Yeah. It must be Bigot. <laughs> Because Alexander it, the bigot. <laughs> yeah. So Alexandra Vigo, for example, made his name largely through the production of terracotta ornament for the facades and fireplaces of Parisian residences and apartment buildings. Um, other Art Nouveau structures, particularly in France and Belgium, uh, were important uh, where Hector uh, Jumard and Victor Horta were important practitioners showed off the technological possibilities of an iron structure joined by glass panels. Oh, wow. Interesting. I didn't think that came in until like the 20s. Yeah. Um, it was, there's a lot of like, uh, they did a lot of like iron gating mm -hmm. and um, uh, like that gold colored uh um, I guess they're tiles or, or whatever, you know, blended in with the stonework. Hmm. In, in many areas across Europe, uh, local stones such as yellow limestone um, or a rocky random coarse rural aesthetic with wood trim characterized Art Nouveau uh, in its residential architecture. Huh. Uh, in several cases, a sculptural white stucco skin was used. Mm. I, I always thought of that as uh, Art Deco. Yeah. Um, or or um, that that modern kind of, but maybe that's, maybe I was just wrong on, you know, what, what it was called. Mm -hmm. um, but stucco was used a lot in Art Nouveau buildings, especially for uh, exhibitions and um, and such. Excuse me. Even in the United States, <laughs> the vegetal the vegetal forms adorning <laughs> Lewis Sullivan skyscrapers, like the Wainwright Building and the Ch Chicago Stock Exchange, are often counted among the best examples of Art Nouveau's wide architectural scope. Uh, there's wow. there's a good. Um, I think that building is in Paris. Is that this? This is. Like a dome with... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like a freaking tree. Right. Um, it looks like it's got like some Egyptian kind of 
Yeah. Uh, influence in a way. Yeah, Greek. Yeah, yeah. Kind of looks like a mausoleum or something. It does. And here we finally get to a little bit of Art Nouveau furniture and uh, interior design. And this is sort of just a summarization. This first part is just kind of like a summarization of uh, what Art Nouveau um, is, I guess. I, I was going to say was, but it still, it still exists. Mm -hmm. um, like the Victorian stylistic revivals and the arts and crafts movement, Art Nouveau was intimately associated with interior decoration, at least as much as it was conspicuous on exterior facades. So it, it's it's part of the building, the the fabric of the building inside and out. Yep. Um, also, like these other styles of the 19th century, Art Nouveau interiors also strove to create a harmonious, coherent environment that left no surface untouched. <laughs> it's like as soon as designers start getting into the mix... They want to get their hands on everything, oh, right? Yeah. Um, furniture design took center stage in this respect, particularly in the production of carved wood that featured sharp, irregular contours, often handcrafted, but occasionally manufactured using machines. Uh, furniture makers turned out pieces for every use imaginable, beds, chaises, Dining room tables and chairs, armoires, uh, sideboards, lampstands, basically any piece of furniture, um, you know, got the Art Nouveau treatment. Yeah. Uh, the sinuous curves of the designs often fed off the natural grains of woods and was often permanently installed as wall paneling and molding. Hmm. In France, the chief Art Nouveau designers include Louis Majorelle, Emile Gall, and Eugene Vallin, all based in Nancy. Nancy boys. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they, they were collectively known as the Nancy boys. <laughs> uh, there were some other guys that worked in Paris. There was uh, Tony Selmersheim. Edouard Colonna and Eugene Gallard also. Um, Eugene Gallard, not to be produced with Emile Gall. Or, or, named, or Eugene Valin. Yeah, right? The latter two specifically for Siegfried Bing's shop, remember, named Art L'Art Nouveau, um, which gave the whole movement its most common name. Mm, by a German in... Paris. <laughs> yeah, a German uh, merchant gave the the name it's the movement its name. It, it's ironic, I guess. Uh, in Belgium, the whiplash line and reserved, more angular contours can be seen in the designs of Gustave Surier Beauvais and Henry van de Velde. Mm. who both admired the works of the English arts and crafts artists. Um, this is an interesting little bit I came across. Ooh. Um, 
Italians Alberto Bugatti and Augustino Laurel Lauro were well known for their forays in the styles there. And yes, that is the Bugatti. Uh, um, yeah. I think it's, uh, I think I, I cite it later maybe, or I just looked it up. He's either the father or the grandfather, hmm. probably the father of Bugatti automobiles. I haven't um, seen any of like the new, like the most recent Bugattis, but like thinking of like the Bugattis of whatever, five, 10 years ago, like the Veyron. Mm-hmm. does kind of have that, you know, that real sleek and, and curvaceous kind of look to it. Yeah, yeah. Like it almost looks like uh, something that would be in like a a movie um, as like a car in the future, you know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah, I guess it's no coincidence, you know, that influence is there. It's in the blood. Um, um, many such designers move freely between media. Uh, often making them hard to categorize. Uh, Marjorelle, for example, manufactured his own wooden furniture designs and opened up an iron-working foundry, hmm. which also produced many of the metal fittings for the glasswork put out by the Down Brothers Glassworks. Uh, so these guys were, were getting into lots, sort of like us. Yeah. I mean... Dabbling in all the, uh... you know... Although we're not uh, confined to one um, style, you know, we sort of drift between what we like and what the, um, you know, the clients ask for. Mm -hmm. But we try and, um, you know, have our fingers in a multiplicity of... uh, um, Mediums. Yeah, mediums. Yeah. Where are we now? Art Nouveau Furniture and Interior Design. Oh, I just read this. Did Uh, you? That's some... Like the Victorian style, Armin was intimately associated with interior decoration and his least as my uh, bad cutting and pasting. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Painting and the high Painting arts. Painting and the high arts. Here's more of uh, Jeff seeing into the future. Uh, few styles can claim to be represented across nearly all forms of visual and material media as thoroughly as Art Nouveau. Uh, so it was a pretty sweeping uh, movement. You know, it it affected everybody. It's hard to think of like today because, um, you know, everything, everything sort of, it's fair game for us today. Mm-hmm. Um, people say they want um, an armoire. We don't necessarily think of a particular style. We have to ask, what style do you want it built in? Right. Where it seems like during this period, Art Nouveau was so present that if somebody came to you and said, I want an armoire, it was definitively going to be in this style. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of weird to think about. Yeah. Um, being like a movement, uh, a stylistic movement being that powerful. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the closest thing I could think of is white painted shaker. Oh god. <laughs> when that, when that was when that was the in thing, right? Wasn't well, it was, still is. I I know, it's definitely calmed down. Yeah. I mean, there there were there was it's that It's just moved down a rung in the in the food chain. Right, but there was that time where everything that came in, no matter what it was, 
People wanted white painted shaker. Shaker in quotations. Right, right. There's flat panel doors. Mm-hmm. Um, I I sort of uh, knew that as like cottage style. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, that beach cottage kind of look. Mm-hmm. Painted white. Um, white kitchen, man. Nothing worse. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine the fingerprints on the corners of the cabinets. I guess, you know, you got to clean them. Don't bump into anything either. Yeah. It. I've always wanted to go back um, into these places, you know, on... It'd be interesting sort of um, study, for lack of a better word, to log the the lifespan of one of these installations and check it out. You know, how does it look? How does it operate year two, year five, year 10? And then like, when is it ready for replacement? Yeah. You're talking about just like a box store kitchen. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you could get a real idea of its value in mm-hmm. a sense. Or lack thereof. Right. Right. Um, but I guess people are so transient nowadays, they figure they're going to move by the time they use up their... Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been in my house for like 20 years. I never thought I'd be there 20 years. Oh, I plan on being here for 30. <laughs> you have, to have a mortgage burning <laughs> ceremony. Yeah. It's Unless just, I hit that Powerball later today. Yeah. It's just, I, I guess I didn't give it much thought, but I, cause I was never really one to look that far into the future. Mm-hmm. But if you would have asked me when I moved in, are you going to be here in 20 years? I would have said, nah, no way. I, I, I just, I guess, cause I'd never really been anywhere more than a couple of years mm-hmm. up till that point. But it's funny how things work out, isn't it? Yeah. Um, for those that don't know from listening to our earlier podcast, we have our shop behind the house. Mm-hmm. Now, I had no idea that the property was zoned B3, which means a, like a business use when we when we bought the house. I was just looking for a place where I could have like a little hobby shop because mm-hmm. I was I was still planning to be a teacher. Um and I worked a couple of years once I decided to, you know, do the woodwork. I even worked a couple of years in the basement and I didn't find out we were zoned B3 until I went to, for the permits to build the shop. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh hell. Yeah. I got to see there, this, this property used to have a use variance. So might be able to get a, yeah, get that back. I think so. I mean, who, I think what you have to, what I had to do is I had to go around um, uh, to everybody that was in 200 feet of my property line mm-hmm. and notify them of my hearing with the township. Right. So they would have a chance to come in and object, <laughs> which is kind of, kind of a nerve wracking experience. Yeah. Hey, I brought you a cake. And by the way, you're having this hearing. <laughs> right. Because it's shocking how many people, well, you know, see, you're lucky because you got your uh, in-laws across the street. Yeah. Um, and you got the highway, so there's nobody over there. Yeah, I only got about one, two, three, about f- 
aside from my in-laws, four houses. Right. That would, if and five, I had the five, food town. Yep. So, I mean, there weren't that many people, but I was still surprised at how far 200 feet went. Yeah. Like when you go to that back corner where we put all the, mm-hmm. the sawdust, like all those houses on the other block back there fit because mm-hmm. they're so close together. Um, where were we? Uh, <laughs> Few styles claim to be rep. Oh, we were talking about how all-encompassing Art Nouveau was. Right. Um, and then we digress from there. Uh, was the we went down the painted. Uh, so besides those who work mainly in the graphics and architecture and design, Art Nouveau um, had a lot of prominent artists in painting. Uh, Klimt. Um, uh, he was known for Hope 2 and The Kiss, both 1907 and 1908. Um, there's, I got a link to The Kiss because I wasn't familiar with it. Hmm. It's uh, like a Renaissance painting. That's what I thought. Um, didn't, didn't talk to me as Art Nouveau at all. Yeah. Um, but that what that's what he was well known for. Uh, it says Art Nouveau painters were few and far between. Klimt counted virtually no students or followers. Well, uh, so he, I guess he switched to the Art Nouveau style. Um, man, these names. This is I apologize for this. Egon Schiel, a painter, went in the direction of expressionism. And Prouvé is known equally well as a sculptor and furniture designer. Hmm. Uh, do, you, do you know of any of Prouvé's work? No. No, me either. Instead, Art Nouveau was arguably responsible more than any style in history for narrowing the gap between the decorative or applied arts uh, to utilitarian objects and the fine or purely order, ornamental arts of painting, sculpture, and architecture, which traditionally had been considered more important. This is a terrible sentence. <laughs> what am I trying to say here? More important, purer expressions of artistic talent and skill. I think there's supposed to be a comma, a comma yeah. after purer. So it narrowed the gap between the decorative or applied arts to utilitarian objects. Um, so it like, you know, like have you ever heard of Philip Stark, Philippe Stark? He like made those, that orange juicer and things like that. And Sounds familiar. S-T-A-R-C-K-E. I, I don't remember how he spelled his name. He was big in like the eighties in New York, like his stuff. And, um, but like taking a, uh, like a household utensil and making it a piece of art. Yeah. Yeah. So Art Nouveau did this more than any other movement. Uh, I probably could have uh, summarized that (laughs) sentence a little bit better. You know, when you're writing something in your head, you think it makes sense. Oh yeah. And I, I must've read this like three or four times, but, uh, you start to glaze over. (laughs) That's what happens. (laughs) (laughs) here's what I put in parentheses. It's debatable, however, as to whether that gap has ever been completely closed. Mm. Of course it hasn't. Um, Sometimes it goes too far. Yes. You know, the the 
it makes the thing less usable. Right. There's actually a, a really good series on on YouTube. Uh, who does it? I forget the channel. But it's a guy. He's like a, a product designer. And they take, typically, it, it might be, uh, I forget who does it, but it's a, I think it's a cooking, cooking channel. He, they take kitchen objects, like whatever. It could be a juicer. Mm -hmm. So they take like six juicers and he actually examines them and sees if, you know, how they work, if they're, you know, work well, like he'll use his left hand to test, test the ergonomics of it and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. And you see, sometimes it goes too far. Like it looks really nice, but it doesn't work for shit. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. It makes me think of like, um, like, is, do you say at OXO, you ever see those kitchens? Yeah. Like they have a definitive style. Yeah. Like all their stuff always looks kind of the same. I just got a new OXO pepper uh, mill. Oh, there you go. My old OXO pepper mill broke. Um, where are we? So Art Nouveau's reputation for luxury was also evident by its exploitation by some of the best known glass artists in history. Hmm. Um, the only one I ever heard of, of course, was Tiffany. Yeah. Um, and Tiffany actually was cited in the arts and crafts yep. as well. I guess because these, it's it's a time period, and he's jumping in between what's popular, um, and you know he's influenced in his own creations and designs by both these movements. Mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, Emil Gall, the Down Brothers, I guess they're, I think they're Belgian or German, and Jacques Gruber, um, they all were first um, known for their Art Nouveau glass and its applications in many utilitarian forms. Uh, Gall and Dom's first firms established their reputations in vase designs and art glass. Uh, they pioneered new techniques in acid-etched pieces whose sinuously curved, shapely surfaces seem to flow between translucent hues effortlessly. <laughs> Unlike my pronunciation. Seashells by the seashore. I'm surprised they don't have more pictures here. This is a long... Uh, yeah, there's there's no, there's no break here. That's why. Ah, I got you. Um, I think, I think where that blue is, that might be, uh, might be the end of, uh, end of the road for us in, in this, um, episode, this episode. Yeah. Um, so, uh, where were we? Both Tiffany and Jacques Rubert, they, they had trained in Nancy with the Down Brothers. <laughs> The Nancy School. They became specialists in stained glass that celebrated the beauty of the natural world in large-scale luminant panels. Mm. And in jewelry, Rene Lalique. Oh, you've heard of Lalique. No. No? Uh, uh, Louis Comfort Tiffany and Marcel Wolfers created some of the most prized pieces of turn of the century, of the turn of the century, hmm. producing everything from earrings to necklaces to bracelets, brooches, uh, thereby assuring that Art Nouveau would always be associated associated with, oh God, fin de siècle luxury. Is this like the era mean? of the Fabergé egg? Yes. 
despite the hope that its ubiquity might make it universally accessible. Where am I going with this? I don't know. We're like, we're almost halfway through the, uh, slow down. See what, uh, what we got coming up later developments from Wiener Verkstadt, Art Deco. Is there a thing in there where it's episode two? Oh, okay. There's 26 pages here. Yeah. You got 12 pages on the first episode. Well, it is what it is. Listen, buckle up for some uh, out of off kilter uh, times. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> scroll back too far. Where were we? There we go. <laughs> I mean, how much can I, how much can one man write? <laughs> um. So we're talking about Art Nouveau as a influence on all design, not just furniture, but as a this all encompassing thing, and retailing and corporate identity become uh, something that didn't exist up until this point in time. Um, Art Nouveau rises to prominence at the same time that retailing expands uh, and is attracting this really uh, uh, massive audience for the first time. we, I don't really touch upon um, the growing middle class or anything like that. We did that in, in previous episodes. But it's featured prominently by many of the major urban department stores, uh, which is a brand new thing that established in the late 19th century, um, including La Samaritaine in Paris, Wertheim's in Berlin, and the... Magazines Reunie in Nancy. Oh, Nancy. Now, Nancy, I'd never heard of this city. Me neither. But it, it's, it's a pretty prominent place in the development of uh, Art Nouveau. Um, furthermore, it was marketed aggressively by some of the most famous design outlets of the period, beginning with Siegfried Bing's L'Art Nouveau in Paris which remained a bastion of the dissemination of the style until its closure in 1905, shortly after Bing's death. Oh, wow. It wasn't open very that, long. Yeah, that, that store ten years? Like 10 years, and it's like the sort of the, the birthplace of the movement. Yeah. Um, that said, his store was far from the only store in the city to specialize in Art Nouveau interiors and furniture. Um. Uh, I don't know when the first department store opened in America. Uh, Might have been something like Macy's or something like that, or I don't know. Woolworth. Woolworth. Um, Was Lord & Taylor, that used to be a department store? Yeah, yeah. um, Harmons, is that, or that's more of like a pharmacy? Yeah. First department store. What was uh, Macy's in New York used to be something different, wasn't it? I don't think it so. It had a different name? Like it was a different business before, you know what I'm talking about, the Macy's, like the Thanksgiving Day Parade Macy's? Yeah, yeah. I think it used to be something else, wasn't it? Are you thinking of Sears and Roebuck or no. Macy's? I don't know. 
1826, Lord and Taylor opened its first store. Wow. History of Macy's, 1877, R.H. Macy. So it was called R.H. Macy. Yeah, 1902. I had no idea Lord and Taylor was that old. Me neither. Now Lord and Taylor just sells clothes. Yeah. Well, I guess they sell. Well, they sell cosmetics and stuff like that. Or do they? Yeah, they don't sell any type of home. Oh, I don't think so. I've no. never been in one, but I think they're they're more like uh, we had one in the mall, you know, growing up, and I thought it was just clothes and stuff. And they had you know makeup and and like uh, jewelry, like Nordstroms or something like that. Yeah. Lord and Taylor building, million dollar corner, Herald Square. Interesting. <clears throat> All right. So the U.S. had department stores at this time. Have you ever been in uh, Macy's on 34th? No. I've, uh, I'm trying to think if I've ever even been in like Manhattan proper. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure when that store on 6th Avenue was built, but, um, you know, that's the, you know. The but it's in 1902. I don't know when the, when Macy's Herald Square opened. Right. I don't yeah. know if it was built, you know, the building was, maybe the building was there before, but. Yeah, that's the, that's the uh, Santa Claus Macy's. Yeah. From the, what's the name of that movie? Miracle on 34th Street? Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, Art Nouveau is big. It's at the same time as these department stores uh, are popping up, mm -hmm. and tons of people are shopping now. Um, Everybody's got a little extra money in their pocket because yeah. of industrialization. And in Italy, you have Liberty and Company. That's That's the big store. Uh, they became synonymous with the style, and many Art Nouveau designers made their names working exclusively for these particular retailers hmm. before moving in other directions. Uh, architect Peter Behrens, for example, designed virtually everything from tea kettles to book covers to advertising posters and exhi exhibition pavilions interiors, uh, utensils, furniture, even becoming the first industrial designer uh, when in 1907 he was put in charge of all design work uh, for AEG, which is oh, wow. Algemein Elektristats Gesellschaft. That's the German cent German General Electric. Yeah, AEG still around. They make yeah. tools, I think. Um, so what happens after Art Nouveau? Uh, if Art Nouveau quickly took Europe by storm in the last five years of the 19th century, artists, designers, and architects abandoned it <laughs> just as quickly in the first decade of the 20th century. Isn't that funny? Like throwing a match into a fire. I mean, we just spent like 45 minutes talking about how all-encompassing Art Nouveau was. Mm -hmm. And then it just... You know, they dropped it like a hot rock. Flash in the pan. Yeah. Um, 
Although many of us practitioners had made the doctrine that form should follow function central to their ethos, some designers tended to be lavish in their use of decoration, and the style began to be criticized for being overly elaborate. Hmm. So they well, just took and, it too far. Yeah, arts and crafts sort of elbowing its way back uh -huh. in. Uh-huh. <clears throat> in a sense, as the style matured, it started to revert to the very habits it had scorned. And a growing number of opponents began to charge that rather than renewing design, it had merely swapped the old for the superficially new. Meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. Dun, 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 you know that song? And the band plays on. <laughs> Won't get fooled again. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> Even using new mass production methods, the intensive craftsmanship involved in much Art Nouveau design kept it from being becoming truly accessible to mass audiences. Uh, as its exponents had initially hoped it might. That's one thing I did remember. Um, nobody could afford it. Right. Um, in some cases, such as uh, in Darmstadt, lax international copyright laws also prevented artists from monetarily benefiting from their designs. Hmm. So, <laughs> a little glimpse into the future there, yeah. huh? You know, cheap knockoffs and yep. people stealing original designs. Now there's, you know, fast fashion and fast furniture. It's all, you know, you all you need is a look in your head and you can get it for next to nothing mm -hmm. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Know, it might not be the real thing, but it's close enough for most people. Yes. Um, Art Nouveau's association with exhibitions also soon contributed to its undoing. Huh. To begin with, most of the fair buildings themselves were temporary structures that were torn down immediately after the event closed. Oh, Jesus. Wow, what a waste. I mean, you can imagine the amount of work that went into that. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, the expositions themselves, though held under the guise of promoting education, international understanding, and peace, instead tended to fuel rivalry in competition among nations due to the inherently comparative nature of display. <laughs> so it wasn't all uh, popcorn and lollipops or yeah. whatever that phrase is. Sugar and spice and everything nice. <laughs> Many countries, including France and Belgium, considered Art Nouveau as potential contenders for the title of national style before charges of Art Nouveau's foreign origins or subversive politics, political undertones. Um, because in France, it was variously associated with Belgian designers and German merchants and was sometimes the style used in socialist buildings. How dare they turn public opinion against it? Oh, my God. Uh, with a few notable exceptions where it enjoyed a committed circle of dedicated local patrons, by 1910, Art Nouveau had vanished from the European design landscape. Wow. I had no idea it was so fleeting. Me either. Um, from Weiner Workstadt to Art Deco. Okay. 
That's the title here. Art Nouveau's death began in Germany and Austria, where designers such as Peter Behrens and Josef Hoffman and Coleman Moser began to turn towards a sparer, mm. more severely geometric aesthetic Moser. as early as 1903. Moser, that's, that's right, I wonder. Um, that year, many designers formerly associated with the Vienna Secession founded the collective known as the Weiner Werkstatt, whose preference for starkly angular and rectilinear forms recalled a more precise, industrially inspired aesthetic that omitted any overt references to nature. Hmm. Sounds like a little bit like Bauhaus. Yeah, there you go. It's also um, German. Weiner so, Werkstatt sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Workstat is like workstation or something like that. Hmm. Um, this reification of the machine-made qualities of design was underscored in 1907 by two key events. The installation of Barron's as AEG's chief of all corporate design, from buildings to products to advertising, uh, again, making him the first uh, industrial designer in the world, and the founding of the German Workbund, the formal alliance between industrialists and designers that increasingly attempted to define a system of product types based on standardization. Hmm. Wow, so this is a real uh, movement away from nature-inspired, florid design to... to Almost like a stark utilitarian yeah. sort of simplicity. Yeah. And it's kind of what we think of with German design too, isn't it? Yep. Um, so we're moving away from uh, something centered in France, more or less, to something centered in Germany. Those Nancy boys out in France. <laughs> the school of Nancy. <laughs> uh so, combined with a newfound respect for classicism, boy, there's such a strong reaction to Art Nouveau, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, they just it just shoots people back into the opposite direction. Inspired in part by the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, uh, and given an official blessing by the City Beautiful movement in the U.S., this machine-inspired aesthetic would eventually develop in the aftermath of World War I into the style that we now belatedly call Art Deco. <laughs> so I, before this, I would have thought Art Deco and Art Nouveau were the same things. I always thought Art Deco came, uh, I mean, maybe I didn't know about the timeline, but Art Nouveau more curvaceous and Art Deco to me more straight lines. Mm -hmm. that, you're exactly right. I thought they were the same name for the same, for, you know, like two that, different names for the same thing, but yeah, they're not. That, that building that we looked at before in Paris with that big tree kind of yeah. looking, to me, that looked almost Art Deco. Right. Aside of, from the rounded, you know, but those straight sort of monitors on the top of the building mm -hmm. with the, to me, that looked very Art Deco. Yeah. That's, that's what I always think of with Art Deco, those very angular, mm -hmm. boxy kind of. Like the um, Empire State Building. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chrysler Building's another great example. Yeah. Um, uh, so, 
Its distinctly commercial character was expressed most succinctly at the Exposition Internationale des Arts Décoratifs <laughs> Industriel Moderne in Paris in 1925, the event which would, in the 1960s, give Art Deco its name. Mm. So Art Deco wasn't named till well after its... Mm -hmm. Um, prominence as a style. It be, kind of comes out of uh, Art Nouveau. It's influenced by this German aesthetic, you right. know, machine made, and becomes Art Deco. Um, so postmodern influences of Art Nouveau. Um, despite its brief life, Art Nouveau would prove influential in the 60s. Uh, and 70s to designers wishing to break free of the confining, austere, impersonal, and increasingly minimal aesthetic that prevailed in the graphic arts. Uh, the free-flowing, uncontrolled, linear qualities of Art Nouveau became an inspiration for artists such as Peter Max. You know him, right? Nope. Uh, you know, uh, like the Beatles' Yellow Submarine? Yep. That's Peter Max. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, and so I could see that influence definitely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so Peter Max, mm -hmm. whose evocation of dreamy psychedelic alternative experience recalls the imaginative, ephemeral, and free-flowing aesthetic world of the turn of the century, and um, always recognized from the start as an important step in the development of modernism in both art and architecture. Today, Art Nouveau is understood less as a transitional bridge between art periods as it is an expression of the style, spirit, and intellectual thought of a certain time frame centered around 1900. Uh, in its search to establish a truly modern aesthetic, it became the defining visual language for a fleeting moment of the age. Well. So I guess that kind of summarizes why we had um, this long meandering <laughs> episode where we didn't really have our, uh, our, for us, our traditional, um, formatting, mm -hmm. you know, was Art Nouveau was almost like a, uh, a way of thinking about things. Yeah. Um, and less, um, you know, well, we have this move this reaction from uh that was against although there was the reaction against the victorian uh ideal mm -hmm. which kind of uh, kicked it off it it didn't really uh follow the same footsteps right as a lot of our other uh periods of furniture and it didn't have like one or two main guys uh, which which drove it like, that we're used to. You know, we're kind of, uh, we've been going through and there have been, you know, Sheridan and Chippendale and they kind of come out with this way of looking at furniture and building it. And mm -hmm. then everybody imitates that. This kind of opened up um, thought and it was just more expressive, I guess. It was, yeah, it was sort of everybody who was within any type of, Know, the creative world yeah um and one thing we're gonna see as uh 
we get into looking at um, the furniture and some visual examples, symmetry was really not part mm-hmm. of our nouveau. Um, I guess this is where we're going to leave our first episode. Yeah, we better not talk too much because we uh, we better save it for because we're about halfway through. Yeah, our, we're uh, we're halfway through. Yeah. And we got three more episodes, so. Uh, yeah, we'll leave you at that. Um, if you want to help support the podcast, you can join the Patreon. You can leave us a review on uh, Apple Apple Podcasts. I don't know if Spotify. Spotify might have reviews, maybe. Um, get yourself some vesting. If you have any questions about vesting, you can always message us on Instagram. Um, use our code American Craftsman over there, and you can use it uh, at Bits and Bits as well. So thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Yeah. We'll see you next week.